0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we review the winner of the Global Countdown
1: World Cup. So now we have four finalists left, shall we start with the actual business?
0: Plus, our usual selection with the best Christmas songs.
2: I used to love Backstreet Boys, so I kind of wanted this to be better. It's very Buble, but kind of like the Argos Buble, right? It's kind of very... (laughs) Buble does
3: does the Buble so better than anyone. Exactly. He He
2: can sing. Who needs this?
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hello, everyone. We have exciting interviews ahead, but we start with our very own winner of the first... Global Countdown World Cup. Let's have a listen.
1: Fernando, today is the day many of us have been waiting for. For the last few weeks, we have been running a special World Cup version of
0: this segment. Shall we recap the rules again? Absolutely. So uh, I was mimicking the World Cup groups, but instead of looking at football, I was looking at their number one song from a local artist it's been an arduous process marcus but here we go this is the big final there are four countries in it it's the netherlands germany argentina and south korea which i have to say is a very good mix they really did their best when it comes to music but there's Mm. only one winner
1: Exactly. Do you want to say anything else before we start this countdown, as you do in, in, in song competitions like in Eurovision? Absolutely. Can you, do you want to talk about how hard it's been to has it's been to choose these winners and it's so been,
0: forth? It's been hard. I mean, some countries actually was really hard to find actually a local artist because it was dominated by artists from another nation. Uh, but, you know, even looking at the list, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the country. I think some, of course, we have South Korea here is a major player in the pop market worldwide, but some surprises, I mean... Who would have guessed that Dutch pop is so creative and interesting week by week as well? So I, I love that. I discovered a lot of things during this process, Marcus.
1: Me too. So now we have four finalists
0: left. Shall we start with the actual business? Absolutely. We start with the Netherlands. And he's kind of a, a, a young artist. He just won a competition in, in the Netherlands called Are You Next? It's kind of a reality show. And this song was produced by top uh, you know, Dutch producers, as well, he's got a very interesting story, Claude. He's he's Dutch, uh, but he was originally from Congo. He moved uh, to the country when he was, uh, I believe, 15 years old. Uh, and this song that we're gonna hear, it's a mix of Dutch and French as well. Uh, this is Claude with La Dada. <laughs>
1: At I, least that's an easy song title to remember.
0: It's easy, but it, it, I think it's it's great as well, uh, Claude. And he's been compared, He, some people are saying that he's the Dutch Stromae, mm-hmm. the very, uh, the iconic, uh, you know, Belgian uh, singer. And what I like about the Netherlands as well, Marcus, I mean, of course, they've been through the semifinals and here and there all the other number ones were excellent as well so they've been proved to be very consistent some electro pop some ballads some dance so well done the netherlands you know a very good entry for the very small european nation a winner that. already shall we say who knows Who exactly knows? well we continue with another another country from our top four now absolutely it's germany and and, and again they've been having some very interesting number ones but this one is, is, is very interesting. It's a very kind of local German phenomena in a way. Uh, I don't think many people outside Germany know him. It's 24 Tim. He's a TikTok influencer. So he used to talk to kids about all sorts of things. But then this is the year he decided to be a pop star. And he was number one with his first single, Bling Bling. And then he got a second number one. And now this is only his third single and third number one song as well. I think we should have a listen. So you have the vibe. I mean, what this uh, young man from Cologne uh, is is 2014 with Gal- Galaxy
1: ins All, werd getragen von meinem Team. Hater geben Rückenwind immer, wenn ich flieg. Skinny, streak dress, aber immer High Heels. Und ich schweb I'd say that I think German dance music hasn't really evolved that much since my university days.
0: I mean, it is connecting to the public. It's a really interesting and he's going on tour on several German cities uh, next year. So that's, again, it's it's a surprise number one uh, for Germany there. But Marcos, actually our next country, is actually the only country that has a chance to win the real World That was the point I wanted to oh, make for so sorry.
1: because I was doing my research as well. Argentina is here.
0: Argentina is here and Argentina has been having a fabulous kind of music renaissance. Uh, a lot of young rappers are coming from there as well. We have a bizarre, bizarre Rap as well, but this song has been number one since I actually started the Global Countdown World Cup, because of course some countries, there's a number one every week. But I think in Argentina, La Roaqui, uh, a young rapper, she's doing so well. I mean, and she has many other songs actually in, in, the, in the Argentinian charts, but this it's been the hit of the summer I may say right there in the southern hemisphere uh, but let's have a listen La Joaquí Dos Besitos
5: Mami, te la TV más <laughs> linda para lista, la pista, right, right.
0: But I do you want to tell us what this this song is all about it well Dos besitos is two little kisses it's it's kind of a fun a party track you know in the video she's like walking through like a local fun fair you know with her friends so I think it's kind of uh, irreverent mm. um if I may say I really I really like it actually I feel very young and happy listening to this. Well, we have one
1: song left, Fernando, in this top four of finalists.
0: A completely different uh, tone uh, tone change here. It's a song from South Korea. And again, this has been a surprising number one for South Korea, I have to say. The song took like eight months to reach the top levels of the charts. Uh, of course, it became viral on social media. And one of the reasons uh, for the success is that the singer for the song, Jung she decided to perform at local campuses across South Korea. So it's kind of a word of mouth kind of type of success. Very grassroots approach into finding success. Very grassroots and and a beautiful ballad. And again, we've just heard some up tempo songs, but this is a little bit kind of slower. Uh, Jungha with Event Horizon. <laughs>
1: Those were the four tracks, four countries we have now in the in the finalists, in a final round,
0: top four. It's time for the results, Marcus. Exactly. I'll start from the bottom, okay? Who is number four? I'll tell you. Germany. Well done, but you know,
6: it's Why? not the best. It's not <laughs> the best song, but
0: it's, it's great. It's a great local phenomenon. We love local uh, artists there. Number three. Oh, we uh, we should
1: do a countdown now. We still have Netherlands left, we have Argentina left, and South Korea left.
0: Yes. And number three, Marcus, it's South Korea. Well done for being one of the most exciting music markets in the world. Perhaps it's a little bit of a slower track. Mm. I think they have other excellent tunes in there. It's a well-deserved number
1: three. And your reason for that was simply that it just wasn't... Good enough, again.
0: It's not good enough as the, our top two. Our top two is very strong, Marcos, and it's been a very hard decision for me to make because it could have been either country, actually, at the top. But, you know... So now we have two countries left. Yes. Uh, well, I've got to be honest, at number two, we're going to Argentina. Oh. It's It almost reached number one. But, you know, well done. They might win the World Cup.
1: Exactly. I Fair mean, they,
0: they're the runner-ups here at the Global Countdown World Cup. But I think the number one country, Marcus, it surprised me, the diversity, uh, the different mix of genres as well. It's very exciting to see just a 19-year-old topping the charts with a very catchy song. And as all the newspapers are saying, he could be the new big star in the Netherlands. And I like that as well. So it's Claude who won the final Absolutely.
1: And, Marcus, if I may say, do you think we have time to play a little bit more of Claude? I think we should finish this segment with a bit of Claude from the Netherlands, the winner of this World Cup version of the Global Countdown. Congratulations to the Netherlands. Thank you. Well. <laughs>
0: And as a highlight from The Stack, our show about print media, Monaco's Thomas Lewis, he spoke to Mark Doby, the publisher of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. Bozeman was also elected one of the best small cities, according to Monaco's forecast. Let's have a listen.
7: Montana is a genuine place, and it has unique character. It's very outdoorsy. There are a lot of opportunities for hikes and going up into the mountains. A lot of wildlife. Yellowstone National Park to the south of us is awesome. Uh, You know, the off-season in Yellowstone in the wintertime was one of the most exceptional times to go see wildlife up there. It's just really remarkable but mostly it's it's the community. The the people are very, it's a very friendly community. It's both open and tight knit at the same time because people are just so Montana friendly Mm -hmm. around here. And there's been a lot of growth. So it's going through a few growing pains. Notably, you know, real estate is kind of out of touch for entry level home buyers. and, And so hopefully that gets corrected soon. But you know, just generally, it's just, it's an outdoor, it's a healthy place, it's a place where you can, it's walkable and rideable uh, with bikes, and but, but at the same time, you know, it, just a short drive out into the country, and, and you're in some of the most beautiful mountainous region that, that we have around here. I mean, we look to the south of us, Salt Lake City has two days a week that they're in print, and they're... Print circulation has fallen dramatically, and you know other major metropolitans have seen the same. We're lucky to have an in-print delivery six days a week. We have a million-plus page views a month on our website. We have a paid digital subscription group that's growing at double digits every year, 20-plus percent growth. And we get people subscribing to the Bozeman Daily Chronicle from all over the country. People that are just interested in it, maybe it's an interest in the area, or maybe they have connections here with family. But I see paid digital subscribers coming in from, you know, as far away as is New York and Maine to Southern California and Texas and Louisiana and all over the place. So it's really it's a good makeup where we distribute in the city. Our our print readership is around nine thousand daily, and our digital paid readership is about three thousand daily. And then, of course, the, the larger audience, uh, about 100,000 people visit our website every month. Because we focus on local content, and that's really where our journalists are focused, I think that we have that interest. And I think on top of that, people are just really interested in what uh, happens in their community. They're interested, they're active in their community. There are a lot of people that are active in planning development planning in how the city grows planning in how resources are used you know open spaces are a big thing we have a lot of open space within and outside the city just trying to preserve that and just being understanding of you know what's going on at the county level at the city level and with parks and recreation and and just the citizens i mean it it's really rare that we have violent crime on the front page of the news. I mean, it's more often than not we're reporting on something that's happening around growth, or we're reporting on something that's happening around city politics, or, you know, just something really cool that's happening up in the park or, you know, in the areas around us. 95% of our work is just fact based, no opinion reporting. And so, This place or other similar sized towns I've been in, it's really important for the newspaper not to try to blur opinions in there. And so our team works really hard to not do that, and they don't. And so this town, I don't know if it makes it any easier or harder, but it it certainly is something we're very cognizant of that 90% of our job is just, you know, we don't want to tell people how to think or what to think about a particular issue even if it's a hard issue, and you know, outside of those opinion pages. And those are physically separated in the paper to their own section without advertising just on their own page, the opinions. And it's really more community board. We're lucky enough to have a lot of community members involved in that community editorial board that can share that diverse opinion. Well, we, we constantly want to add the digital subscribers to to our base, because that really is where more and more people are consuming their their news is online but i think in terms of growth plans doing what we're doing but making sure that our you know we capture all of the audience that has interest in news in Bozeman Montana and Belgrade Montana is important so as much as that audience wants to uh grow with us that's where we'll grow, you know, on, on that side. And at the same time, we're going to preserve our, we have a large investment in print facilities. Behind that wall is a very large press facility, and we print not only our paper, but several other papers across Montana. So we're very much invested in the print product as well. And in the last two years, our parent company has invested heavily in that. They've invested a lot of money in that facility to, to make sure it's state of the art and that it's efficient and that we can uh, keep delivering a quality print product.
0: You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24 and now I have a very important question to you. Who has the best Christmas song? Of 2022, Well, we have an expert panel here that will tell us. It's Rob Out, of course, and he was joined by Georgie Rogers and Will Hodgkinson for their annual festive review of the season's music releases, including albums and singles from Backstreet Boys, Phoebe Bridgers and Lizzo.
2: Listen to me
8: Okay, that was Phoebe Bridges with so much wine. Do you agree with the sentiment that there is only so much wine you can drink in a lifetime? <laughs> We're approaching that season and we're busting at the limits.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of think sonically, it's kind of got the vibe of like a, a meat cue over wine in a wintry cabin. Mm. But actually, it's kind of depressing if you listen to the lyrics. It's just sort of about drinking all the wine, which um, is, you know, a mild alcoholism. But um, it's got oh, a
8: lockdown song more than a Christmas song. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. But I love it. I look forward to Phoebe Bridges' Christmas song every year. We had Tom Waits, didn't we, last year, um, a cover of that. And this is a cover of The Handsome Family. And, oh, it's just beautiful. It's utterly melancholy and a wallow track in the most beautiful way. But then there's also kind of, it's got that country tinge and the strings and it, oh, just, yes, it's, yes, yes, yes.
8: It's gorgeous stuff. <laughs> Handsome family. I mean, this this kind of feels, I don't know where we are. We were kind of like in Dust Bowl Christmas territory here. Well, yeah, it's very I mean, beautiful, it's, isn't
3: it? Yeah, it's sort of, it's deep misery. But then the way <laughs> Phoebe Bridges does this is it's good because... I think there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek in in there. Yeah. You know, I mean, all all of the... You know, the Tom Waits song's very sad too. You know, so I think that was Day After Tomorrow. I think every time she does it, and obviously it's a charity thing... She, there's something about her voice, you know, initially I was thinking, oh no, there's nothing worse than some tasteful indie Christmas, you know, but actually. Bit John Lewis. Bit John Lewis, yeah, well, no, even more like rough <laughs> trade, and and I just thought, okay. I, uh, but actually it's lovely.
8: Yeah, it's good, I mean, Phoebe Bridges also, she's got the pipes, I mean, she's. Yeah, know, so There's
3: something very melancholic, like you yeah. said. I mean, the lyrics are so much wine. The time when you threw all your clothes out in the snow. I mean, you know, they've had a massive row. They have. He's, he's completely drunk, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, they've gone from Jovios to Bellicose. Yes. Uh, to Lacrimose. <laughs> And he's just horrific. He's the guestist
8: with the mostest. Yeah. Will Hodgkinson, we better stop there because I can um, hear the majestic delivery man knocking on the door for Phoebe <laughs> and probably us three as well. So that was So Much Wine. This is from an EP that kind of gets updated every year from Phoebe Bridges. Next, shall we have a clip of it and see if you can guess whom this is?
9: Every time I close my eyes I pretty got you by my side I just want to see your face Feel your warm embrace.
8: Fingers on the buzzers then, Georgie and uh, Will. Who are we listening to there?
9: The backstreet Boys. <laughs> Hodgkinson back, Times
8: right. buzzes in. OK, <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a very Backstreet Christmas. It really you could is. could have put many adjectives there, but they
3: chose Backstreet. They chose Backstreet. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the Backstreet Boys. They're not pretending to be anything other than the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of fairly terrible. It's like this is if, if Phoebe Bridges was the you know John Lewis. This is this is the Argos Christmas, isn't it? You know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah, I, no, it's it's. I mean, I don't. In a way, I don't think I even really want to put the boot in because. Backstreet Boys, just a boy band who is now a middle-aged man band
8: yeah. doing their thing. There is something kind of department story in where in the environments which you might hear it though, right? It's I think got that's that, right. It's got you gonna hear
3: it. But it's sort of it's also it's like It's got a... some
8: polyester potential polyester fire oh,
3: going it, on there. I say to Georgie, it's all about it's all about association. And for me, the association here is you know when you you come in, it's really cold and you're stuck in a department store, it's absolutely baking. Yeah. So you've got about ten layers yeah. on. And you're hassled and you can't find the thing you want and you really want to go and they're playing this in the background it just drives you absolutely (laughs) insane. I think that's five stars
8: from Will. <laughs> there are moments in this song and indeed in the album, I have flicked through, right. where it really kind of, they take it to a lot of bridges. They, they, take, really it, they take it
2: to the bridge. They
8: really do. Um, <laughs> Every bridge. Very backstreet people. Yeah, Aww. there's a lot of high-pitched moments in this. Yeah. Georgie, can you expand and we'll kind of will feeling like it's <laughs> Primark in musical, yeah. musical form.
2: I'd agree, I'd agree. I mean, I'll put the boot in. I didn't know that White Christmas, being the classic that it is, could be murdered and yes... Here, it gets mud. It's that kind of like... (laughs) And then, I mean, listen... They can sing. Yeah. I used to love Backstreet Boys, so I kind of wanted this to be better. It's very Buble, but kind of like the Argos Buble, right? Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> very... The buble does,
3: does the Buble so better than anyone. Exactly. So, okay. He can sing. What? Who and needs he, this?
2: And he you puts know? the emotion across. I just felt like this whole album was dead behind the eyes. It's like they can all sing, clearly. Sing. The harmonies are good. Yeah. Like the songs are classic. They haven't like deviated from the kind of classic... Christmas classic format, but just it just left me. Oh my! I just I hated Are we it.
8: Kind of in the territory of why do a cover of it's exactly the same but worse than the original? Yeah. Like there's no deviation from well, that's the, the production style or whatever. Yeah. But I suppose that's the way. Well, that's
3: and, the Christmas album quandary, isn't it? I mean, that's the same. You know, how many more versions? <laughs> we've got of, to the kernel, or uh, only on the backstreet boys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's it's always the way. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of theatrical emoting. Yeah. You know, yeah. you didn't really feel for a moment that you could be affected by it. You know, so it was—it was very hard to actually have some yeah. the to ori- feel that it was making you know that it was demanding of your, your attention. Okay. No. The original
2: um, song was very kind of from Argentos. It's called "Happy Days," and oh, I just no. <laughs> Fromage on <laughs> Some stinky stilts and Christmas cheese on tape. <laughs>
8: <laughs> I might not read it out, What is in brackets on the script here It says the boy band have announced a Christmas special Premiering on Disney Plus On Thursday the 15th of December Maybe not a note for either of your diaries
2: Sadly not An icy quiet say. here in Studio <laughs>
8: One Okay that was the Backstreet Boys If anyone is interested the album is called A Very Backstreet Christmas Other adjectives are available but we're keeping it backstreet. Okay, we're gonna we're sort of changing the tempo, changing the style somewhat. This is new. It's called a family Christmas, and it is indeed the definition of that. This is Andrea, Matteo, and Virginia Bocelli, and this is a bit of Il Giorno Più Speciale. <laughs> Cutting off André then, in his, not in his prime, because he has many prime moments. I think we heard principally from Virginia Bocelli. So this is this is a family affair, Georgie. We might point people in the direction of um, searching online for the album cover art for this because it's quite oh, special.
2: It's something. There's a
8: Christmas film to go with this as well. Um, there's a lot of white cashmere.
2: Yeah, uh, so much but,
8: white. But there's a white cashmere ensembles, <laughs> trousers, socks. Yeah. Of course, jumpers as well. It's all very
2: v- gorgeous. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it made me feel queasy.
2: <laughs> very beige. Oh and, and no. Just high-grade um, luxury, this is luxury materials. Christmas.
8: And this well, I don't know whether this is this is sort of wannabe Bottega Vanessa. I don't think it's quite getting there.
3: Well, I unfortunately, I, I, the thing, I think what's going to happen is that Virginia is not going to be thanking Andrea and Matteo Bocelli in a few years' time, right? Where she's a teenager and having a terrible time at school because she's made this awful <laughs> album with her. I, no, I mean, I really hated it, but they I, they can, I don't mean to be rude see. here,
8: but you know, these are Italian people. There is a certain embracing the full silliness of Christmas. You might say the full, you know, the full smells and bells here is perhaps what they're doing. That's, my, that's what I'd say in their, in their defence. And I feel like I have to, I have to rush to someone's
9: defence. Well, fair enough.
3: No, I mean, I, I really dislike this one in, in an intense fashion. Um, I think it's, it's when they started doing Over the Rainbow that I thought, this is wrong. It just, it just felt so, I mean, obviously they can sing brilliantly. That's yeah. like, that goes without question. But I thought it was very self-regarding somehow. It's almost like we are the greatest, we're also the richest, the most beautiful, we've got it all. Yeah, you no, know, I
8: okay. didn't like it. You didn't like that. You didn't like them luxuriating in front of the sort of. No, it's quite yacht. Elton Johnish. Their their interiors, I would said. quite sort of Versace mansion. Georgie, can you can in you can you, can you save them defense. anything?
2: Well, I think coming off from a Backstreet Christmas, I actually was like, oh, this feels like Christmas. Right. This more, you know, it's got the twinkling pianos and the sleigh bells and the production's quite lush and it's and Christmassy. Yeah. yeah. And you know, yeah, they can all sing. Virginia, she's only ten. And she hasn't got an affected voice, which was good. It wasn't kind of well, like... Lots
8: of trills, is it?
2: Child star kind she of, She sounds know. like a child. She does good. sound like yeah. a child and she does have a very beautiful voice. And some there are some of the tracks, I think, on there that they do pretty well. And then there's some moments that aren't quite so good. But I thought, <laughs> I, yeah, I felt like it was quite tasteful. I don't know, it's the sort of thing that you maybe put on in the background a bit, you know, so far...
3: Oh yeah, I can imagine
8: this sort
2: of
3: slotting into the background. No, I just felt that where this is playing, you know, they're going to even if I walked into their world, I just think that someone would look at me and say, "Well, the green ones are for recycling and the brown ones for general rubbish." You know, I just, I just felt that yeah, I can't match up. (laughs) <laughs> I feel
8: like you might walk into their sitting room and all your teeth fall out. It's kind it's of like the that. kind of music that gives you diabetes. Yeah, it no, is very saccharine. Too much for me. It's a. It's not a Christmas <laughs> sugar rush for Will Hodgkinson. Georgie <laughs> Rogers being a little bit more charitable. <laughs> to the Bocellis, all three of them, and they're having a family Christmas. That's Andrea Matteo and Virginia Bocelli. As we mentioned, there is both a short and a long, I believe, Christmas film available from them as well, so... Imagine if Will's daughter puts that on the Christmas list around Hodgkinson's She'll be banished. I don't think she will.
1: Get out of town.
7: (laughs) UBS has
8: over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
3: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance
10: today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
0: And for Tall Stories this week, Emily Sands takes us to a puppet theatre that is currently moored in London's Little Venice.
6: in Little Venice, a district in West London. Regent's Canal is in front of me, along with some ducks and the occasional jogger passing by. However, there is something far more interesting to my right. A red and yellow striped barge, sitting comfortably in the water. The largest boat that you can get on the Regent's Canal. But it's not just any barge, it's the Puppet Theatre Barge. Gren Middleton and Juliet Rogers started as a touring company called Moving Stage in 1978, specialising in marionette theatre. They spent several years travelling the UK and the world, but then they wanted something a bit more permanent. So they bought a 72-foot-long Thames lighter barge and transformed it into the puppet theatre. Gren and Juliet, who are now in their 80s, have stepped back to let the family carry on the theatre. Kate, their daughter, runs the puppet barge with her two sons and her husband, Rob.
5: Generally, we do children's shows. That is our bread and butter. That's what we mostly do. But we do do shows for adults as well, puppet shows. We've done various Shakespeare productions and specially commissioned works as well by by contemporary playwrights. Also, we've started doing a few little acoustic music nights. We've had a bit of cabaret and drag as well. So we're diversifying a little bit, but it's such a special venue. I think people love performing here, even when it's not puppets.
6: Let's head onto the boat and take a look around.
5: You come on a bit of a journey just coming down here, as you, you're probably feeling, it's, a, it's quite strange. You've got the playing of the light on the water, just sort of dancing around like a kind of animation. You're in the foyer, which is a bit like the kitchen in a party. You don't want it to get too crowded, but inevitably everyone ends up here.
6: Rob points out some puppets above my head, hanging from their strings on the walls. These puppets are from Pakistan, Indonesia and Burma, just a few of the many places that the theatre puppets have come from. I asked Rob what the experience is like for children as they embark onto the barge and step down into the theatre that occasionally bobs up and down when other boats pass by.
5: They're very excited coming on. You know, we have sort of won half the battle because they have to go up the gangplank and then past the bollard and they can see the water and usually a few geese and ducks and so on and then down into the barge so they're very excited already you've kind of transported them somewhere else and they're in a different world it's quite dark down here like in a nice way sort of warm dark kind of feel they come into the theater and sit down and there's a golden curtain and they've no idea what's going to happen and they're looking around and there's some you know strange looking puppets i'm not going to lie It's actually funny, it's almost often the adults who have more of a problem with the puppets than the kids, although there are one or two that are really fierce, and we are thinking of possibly swapping them with something else.
6: Puppetry is an ancient form of performance that can be dated back to Egypt in 2000 BC. In French, marionette means Little Mary, as during the Middle Ages, string puppets were often used to portray biblical events, with the Virgin Mary being a popular character, hence the name. But marionette isn't the only type of puppetry out there. There are other variations, such as shadow puppets, hand puppets, stick puppets and finger puppets, to name a few. But the Puppet Barge specialises in marionettes.
5: We have some really well-trained marionettists who can make those marionettes appear incredibly lifelike. And I think of all the puppet forms, if you can do that, it's a magic that no other puppet has because... You can't see what's going on. Yes, you can see the strings a little bit, but you don't really understand how they're doing what they're doing, and you soon forget about them. We're doing a show at the moment called P, which is uh, loosely related to the princess and the pea," that story. It's by one of our puppeteers that, that's been working with us for a while now, a guy called Eden. He has a company called Nod at the Fox. So that's not one of our, our productions, as it were. It's a production coming in, which is something that we've been doing more recently and is really fun because he's adapted it, so he uses all of the stage. He's mostly in front of the stage, but he's also used the marionette stage because he's been trained up here and does marionettes. So it's a mixture of tabletop and marionettes.
6: The barge often makes its way up the Thames to Richmond for the summer holidays, the whole process taking around three to four days to pull off. The whole barge needs to essentially be packed away for the journey. This includes collapsing the roof, removing some of the seats in the theatre and carefully packing away the marionettes. And then whilst on the move, there are around nine locks that need to be carefully navigated. As we walk down into the theatre, in front of me is a shiny gold curtain and Rob kindly shows me backstage. Through a small doorway, I have to duck to enter, as was the theme for most of the barge.
5: So if you've ever been behind a theatre, it's like everything like in a big theatre but just smaller... The ropes for a big theatre, say a West End theatre, are like big ropes, like we would move the barge with, like a boat. And these are like just up from a string to something a bit slightly more than that. But this is for the backdrops, this is exactly the same thing. And these are what we call a double bridge marionette stage, so they mostly do it from the back bridge here, and they can do it over the front or the back. So you've got two stage areas, the stage been removed here. Yeah? This plank here, the back plank, and then the middle area there. And you've also got a front bridge, because crossing over is hard work.
6: The barge is full of character and it's clearly a special place for children to come and spend time watching the magic on stage. As one of the only places in London where you can see a Marionette Puppet Show today, it's important to Rob and his family to maintain this form of theatre on their barge, which has been running for the last forty years.
5: People who haven't been here before are like, wow, what this place is amazing, you know, and that's really nice because it keeps reminding you of yeah actually it is and it's probably worth keeping going because I think You almost feel like you're you're obliged to try and keep something like this going. You can't come up with a thing like this in a corporate boardroom by just throwing a few ideas around. It just doesn't happen. We've been going 40 years, it's our 40th anniversary this year, so you can get people who came here as a child and are bringing their own children, and they really remember it. It's a very memorable place. And from the Foreign Desk
0: Explainer this week, Andrew Muller explains why Guinea's former leader, Moussa Dadi's camera, stands accused of involvement in a 2009 massacre.
11: There is always something gratifying about the spectacle of a tyrant brought low, of seeing someone who once had only to bang their desk with a fist to make a whole nation jump, reduced to pitiful excuses and petty-fogging procedural quibbling as they seek to evade responsibility for their actions. Guinea has little enough reason to be grateful to its former president, Moise Dadis Kamara, but his much anticipated testimony in a Conakry court this week has performed inadvertent service to the hope that justice can eventually be done. Kamara was a little-known army captain when he seized power in Guinea in December 2008, leaping to fill the vacuum created by the death of interminably serving President Lansana Conte. Kamara announced that he was taking charge in the name of one of those bland yet sinister-sounding consortiums often invoked by the practitioners of coups to endow their mutiny with respectability, in this case the National Council for Democracy and Development. On September 28, 2009, it having become clear to many Guineans that this National Council did not appear to rank democracy or development especially high among its priorities, protests against Kamara were organised in Conakry. The date was significant. September 28, 1958 was the day that Guinea overwhelmingly voted for independence from France. On September 28, 2009, the main anti-Kamara protest rally was held in September 28th Stadium in Conakry. Roughly 50,000 people attended. The protest was largely peaceful. The response by Kamara's troops was anything but. The Presidential Guard, a unit commonly known as the Red Berets, stormed the stadium. They killed at least 150 people, injured hundreds more and subjected scores of women to hideous sexual violence. In the months following the carnage of September 28th, Kamara fell out dramatically with his aide-de-camp, the commander of the Red Berets, Lieutenant Abubakar Diakati. Diakite, fearful that Kamara was setting him up to wear the blame for the massacre, shot him, though not quite fatally. Kamara was flown out of Guinea for medical treatment in Morocco and has spent most of the time since in exile in Burkina Faso. The current trial began on this year's anniversary of the September 28th Massacre. Kamara returned to Guinea vowing to clear his name and was promptly detained. Ten other men are also on trial, including Kamara's former ally and would-be assassin, Abubakar Daikiti, who was arrested in Senegal in 2016. <laughs> Daikiti testified in October. Dressed in green and gold robes, he, not altogether surprisingly, blamed Kamara for the crimes committed in 2009 and claimed that his own presence at the stadium on the day had been motivated only by a pure-hearted determination to evacuate senior opposition figures for their own safety. Kamara was actually due to appear in court last week. He did, but only for a few minutes, as long as it took him to plead illness, specifically malaria, a broadly plausible claim which the judges chose to indulge. While recovering, Kamara appears to have done some reading, or at least some Googling. His eventual testimony this week was short on contrition, acceptance of responsibility, that kind of thing, and long on meandering quotations from Immanuel Kant, Heraclitus, and several Egyptian
10: pharaohs.
11: (laughs) Dressed in yellow and black robes, he punted blame for the 2009 massacre back in the direction of Diakiti, and also implicated his eventual successor as president, Alpha Conde, currently a pretty convenient scapegoat. Conde, a veteran opposition campaigner, became Guinea's first legitimately elected president in 2010, but attempted constitutional chicanery to prolong his term, prompting violent protests. He is currently enduring a disconsolate retirement awaiting a trial of his own, not leavened by this week's news that the United States has sanctioned him personally over human rights abuses. Guinea is reportedly gripped by the courtroom drama which is being broadcast live, and that, whatever the final verdict, will have a value of its own. If more military strongmen find themselves whittering and whimpering in the dock, fewer military officers might be tempted to overstep the terms of their oath. And the coup d'etat is, sadly, still a depressingly common manoeuvre in African politics. In the 2020s alone, there have been coups or attempted coups. In Mali, the Central African Republic, Niger, Sudan, Burkina Faso, Sao Tome and Principe, and indeed Guinea, which has been ruled since October 2021 by Colonel Mamade Dumboya, who overthrew President Alpha Conde. It must be hoped that the colonel is among those tuning in to Captain Kamara's undoing. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: And as we like to do on The Curator, we have a lovely recipe for you. And this time is from London's Ombre restaurant.
10: I'm Mitchell Ibrahim, the chef of uh, Ombra, an Italian restaurant in Bethlehem Green and uh, today I'll take you through the steps of how to prepare the tiramisu which is a staple on our menu and it's never off the menu people love it we never have enough in the fridges and today I'll tell you how we make it. So we do a couple of non-conventional things in our recipe one of those is that we use cream which is uh, blasphemy for most Italians but however Mascarpone, which is a key ingredient, is also essentially sour cream. So we don't really see cream being uh, such an alien ingredient to the recipe. Another thing we do, it's a kind of custard cream, like a creme pâtissière, which is essentially egg, sugar, flour, a bit of cornstarch and some milk. And that essentially is the base of the tiramisu cream. To that, we add equal part mascarpone and as I uh, just mentioned, equal part whipping cream. And like most cream, you, you with your spatula, you kind of fold it from the bottom going up to make sure you don't deflate it too much and trying to keep as much air in it as possible. And that's basically half of the recipe. The other half is taking some uh, heavily roasted Italian coffee, brew it, and then soak your ladyfingers biscuit in it. It is important to get the soaking timing right. You don't want a mush biscuit, but you also don't want a hard biscuit. And then yeah, you just get your tray and you lay in your little finger soaked in coffee, you half of the mascarpone cream base, and then go over again with uh, the biscuits and then finish off the cream. And then just before serving, you can either dust some uh, cocoa powder or grate some uh, really dark chocolate. works also really nicely. This is it.
0: You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. It's time for the amusing look at the week that has just been passed. And Andrew Muller is here
11: with what we learned. We learned this week that it is maybe actually possible to feel an amount of sympathy for Russia's soldiers deployed in Ukraine. Over and above, obviously, the fact that they're cold, badly supplied, poorly equipped, ineptly led and pawns in a crime as vast as it is futile. We learned that, who knows, perhaps as a consequence of all of the preceding, it had been noted that morale in the trenches was ebbing somewhat. And we learned that someone at Russia's defence ministry had had an idea for fixing this. We learned that, rather regrettably, the idea was not calling the whole thing off, getting everybody home for Christmas, enacting a swift and efficient coup d'etat and then overseeing a seamless transition to functional democracy and letting somebody sane have a lash at running the joint, but was, broadly, this. Yes. We learned that the Ministry had decided that what would really cheer up the troops at the front was not winter clothing, flak jackets, rations, ammunition, competent commanders and an honourable mission, but balalaikas, harmonicas and accordions. We learned that the ministry, and we checked the date, it wasn't Orthodox Fool's Day or anything, believe that such instruments will, and we quote, support morale and unity, inspire heroic deeds and moral and psychological relief among Russia's invading army. We learned that, accordingly, municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions imagine. (laughs) We learned that basically Russia's Ministry of Defence is now the new stooge in the old joke about the accordionist who leaves his accordion in his car when he goes to the shops and returns to find the window has been smashed and there are ten accordions. Here all week try the (laughs) stroganoff. That'll do. Mallet. They can always burn the accordions, and indeed should. Elsewhere on the Eastern Front, we learn that Poland, if we can extrapolate sweeping conclusions from a single somewhat silly news story, and why not, it's our monologue, appears keen to position itself as a rival to Florida, the and finally state, as a supplier of the kind of inexplicable idiocy which is of greatly welcomed assistance in padding out whimsical news reviews such as this. So cheers, Poland. We learned that in Poland's northwest, near a village we are not going to amuse you all by attempting to pronounce... The tyres of 21 vehicles in a meat warehouse parking lot had been slashed by a miscreant dressed as a Christmas tree. Let's hear it for the detailed evocation of the sound of someone dressed as a Christmas tree slashing tyres there. We have not learned as yet of either the identity or the motives of the branch-bedecked ne'er-do-well. Yes, yes, police are stumped. Hey. More happily, we learned that there is emu news. Retrieve, if you will, from the vault... Emu Strut by 1980s Australian bluegrass sensations The Flying Emus, winner of Best Instrumental at the 1987 Australian Country Music Awards. Because, listeners who have been with us a while, and thank you, may recall that circa July 2020, we learned that a pub in the Queensland hamlet of Yarraka had been compelled to formally disbar two emus, known locally as Kevin and Carol, who had been barging into the premises, knocking things over, getting in the way, making a mess, and snatching toast from the toaster. We were, at the time, unable to rise above a tawdry joke about how it wouldn't have been the first time that a pub in Queensland had been obliged to eject malodorous and unruly patrons, but what are we going to do? It was right there. Anyway, we learned subsequent to their banishment that Kevin and Carol had taken the hint and vanished into the fathomless outback. But we learned this week that Kevin and Carol are back. The pair have returned to Yarraka, along with evidence of what they have been up to in their absence, specifically a brood of four emu chicks. Emu chicks are extremely cute, up until the point that they grow into the infamously querulous crotchety toast-thieving creatures which spawned them. Anyway, not only is this a heartwarming tale in and of itself, it tees us up nicely to play out with some appropriately Christmas and large flightless bird related music. Here is Chris. (coughs) (coughs) Rhea? Come on, like Rhea, another large flightless bird native to South America. This is an excellent joke and not, as you unlettered morons appear to believe, a bad one. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Oh, I can't wait to
1: see those faces.
0: Finally on the show, from Monocle Reads, this week Georgina Godwin sat down with former British anti-appetite leader and Cabinet Minister Lord Peter Hine to talk about his latest book, The Elephant Conspiracy.
4: I was looking and include the figures in this book, though it's intended as a page-turner, which I hope you found it, not as some kind of dry factual compendium, but there were 25 million elephants in the year 1800, before European settlers and trophy hunters started shooting them for fun. By the end of the century, the turn of 1900, the 25 million had fallen to 2 million, and there are now 400,000, and they reckon they'll be extinct by 2040, that's not very far away. So there is a real battle on the front line to protect wildlife. And in these safari parks where rhinos are hunted, where elephants are hunted, and increasingly lions too, there are war zones, battles between poachers and very brave rangers who often lose their lives. Both sets of people lose their lives. So it's very serious indeed.
9: Now, you've got the poachers, who are probably the local people on the ground, often very poor, who are doing it for purely economic reasons. But actually, it's the people controlling them that are the problem.
4: Yes, it is. It's the international crime syndicates that sit on top of these very poor guys, not to excuse them at all, because it's grisly, bloody work that they're doing. Uh, Killing rhinos, killing elephants, ripping their tusks and their, their horns out and leaving them bloody wrecks of former regal animals. But they're really small bear The big criminals are the ones sitting in China or East Asia, like Vietnam, and have got a whole network underneath them, protected by corrupt politicians. And that's, is set. the core of the plot is about the interaction set in South Africa between those two. But you could almost replicate this with any African country that has a lot of wildlife in it.
9: Mm, I mean, because it is almost like a military operation. I mean, these are war-grade weapons.
4: They are. Drones, uh, very heavy armaments, sort of competing set of of firepower because the poachers increasingly up their game militarily and it is, it is paramilitary activity in many respects. So the rangers have to protect themselves and the, the safari parks have to erect even greater defenses. Drones are used a lot, both to attack and to defend and a whole range of high technology in the Kruger National Park, for example, the biggest game park in South Africa and possibly in the world. It's very heavily defended, and yet it's losing rhinos and elephants all the time.
9: Mm. There is legislation, though, that's meant to protect it, and all sorts of schemes. Like, for instance, in in Zimbabwe, we had a scheme called Campfire, where you were meant to pay an amount to the local community in order to shoot a trophy, which was often a problem animal. That didn't work ultimately because of corruption. But there are schemes like that.
4: Yes, there are, and conservationists are doing amazing jobs. Amazing jobs, and the. The dedication of those conservationists is really, you know, mind-blowing and humbling as well. But it's a constant battle because it's like the drug trade and it's on a scale of the drug trade or human trafficking trade or even the arms trade. The reason it's happening is people are prepared to pay for ivory, which is as gleaned from elephant tusks, prodigious amounts of money. And the same for rhino horns that ground down into powder and then used for aphrodisiacs, for cocaine substitutes. By the way, no scientific evidence that Either of those things work, but but for the rich elites in some of these East Asian countries, they're, they're a symbol of uh, elitism and uh, a status symbol.
9: Now, state capture comes into this, and this is a, a phrase we've heard often associated with South Africa. And I wonder if you could just give us a, a bit of background on that.
4: Well, under former President Zuma, who was in power for around 10 years, the state was looted and bent and twisted to be captured by his family, himself, and then his friends, his cronies, the Gupta brothers, originally hailing from India, that settled in South Africa, and were part of this looting operation, a big criminal enterprise. And a couple of them have now been arrested in Dubai. And there was money laundering on a big scale, and I've I've actually gone into the money laundering side of it with a a new character, a former banking executive who stumbles upon this and decides to blow the whistle very bravely and suffers the consequences for it. And I became interested in not just the, the wildlife side of it and the state capture corruption side of it, which I helped expose under parliamentary privilege here in the House of Lords. But also the money laundering side, which I didn't really know anything about until I started delving into it. And I tried through the character named Joan Joseph, um, this fictional banking executive, to try and explain what's happened. That the money goes out of Joburg, Johannesburg, through HSBC or Standard Chartered or Bank of Baroda being the main global banks responsible. Then it goes to Dubai through their digital pipelines. Then it goes somewhere else, often through front companies shell companies set up by the gupta brothers they're the real owners in the background with the zoomers as well in some cases or very often but that's concealed so the money goes into these front companies and then is passed between them maybe ends up in tax havens in the caribbean goes to hong kong which was the other big money laundering center used by the guptas and so what you have here is a industrial scale of corruption and money laundering, which all governments say they're against. Here in Britain, as in America, you've got pretty tough anti-corruption, anti-money laundering laws, but London's a centre for it. Not as big as Dubai and Hong Kong, but a lot of laundered money passes through here. Mm. So there's not enough being done by international governments to do this. But, you know, the plot, which is meant to to race the reader through, I, I hope grippingly so, and I hope you found it so, reveals all of this as Mm. it unfolds.
9: No I mean as you say it's absolutely a page turner but there's all this information coming at you too and you kind of understand how things like this work without it being a a lecture. I mean for instance there's kind of passing reference to it but it's very clear that this is what's going on. Things like wastewater becomes a huge problem in South Africa because none of these state facilities are maintained because that money is being siphoned off.
4: Completely and South Africa's got terrible wastewater and sewage problems at the present time because, as you say, the water system, one of the best in the world in the past, has been allowed to decline. The money's not been spent maintaining it and keeping it running properly and cleanly because they've just helped themselves to the the money that was allocated to the water supply. And that's happened across a range of public services. So South Africa, which in many respects is a first world economy, though a developing world society, is now assuming a dysfunctional form where you get power cuts, even in commercial centres like Johannesburg, water cuts as well, Mm -hmm. simply because the money's been looted that should have been used to maintain it.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening.